0: Hey Saint John, this is Pastor Adam, and you are listening to the post sermon podcast. And I have a bit of a backlog to work through with uh, with you all. So what I'm going to do is kind of go in reverse in some sermons that I need to catch up on with our listeners. And I'm going to start with this past Sunday uh, with Epiphany two, uh, the John two reading with water to wine. Work backwards to the baptism of our Lord, and then I'll give some kind of commentary on the Christmas Eve and Day sermons. Uh, But with that, let's head into uh, our sermon from this past Sunday, Epiphany 2. Now, uh, John chapter 2 is a classic sort of reading during Epiphany, especially it's Jesus' first miracle. I would even encourage you to open up in in your hymnal and look at the Epiphany hymns and just see how many of them reference this miracle. And John even gives uh, some highlight there that this is Jesus revealing his glory and that the disciples believe in him. And uh, John is doing a lot of uh, cool things, uh, of course, with his gospel. Uh, But before us, we kind of look on in wonder at our Lord and what does he come to do? And even little details like making sure that there's enough wine at weddings. Jesus seems to care about that too. Now, uh, one of the challenges with uh, the reading is it's a reading from John, which is a challenge on its own because John, I mean, he, if, If you measure out a sentence of John, let's say it's 12 inches worth of words, I mean, John will turn it into a mile of meaning. And that's just how it is with John. And it's one of the the joys of reading John and studying John, but trying to come up with a specific message in a condensed amount of time with a coherent theme, oh man, uh, John's going to give you too much to work with. And that's how I sort of felt uh, looking at this reading. It's been some time since I preached on John 2 with the water to wine, and so I was just excited to get back into it, and and even in my uh, my study, I just picked out one or two commentaries to look at because they were already going to be way more than was needed, if you will, to accomplish the task of a sermon because it'd be too much to say. You know, all the details, you know, are are saturated with meaning, or at least that's kind of how John seems to write for us. And so that's why I approached the sermon the way I did by organizing it with, hey, I'm going to reread through the reading. And it made commentary on, on sets of verses with the intent of having a coherent theme. And that's why I worked through the idea of the grayness of things. That just, look, we look at the, the weather, what's going on, seasonality, sadness, sorrow, and how grayness just makes it oh, just worse. And that this story, it's, it's a story of, of a wedding, of joy, of warmth. And the story colors our lives because we have the word become flesh. Who's become flesh for us. Uh, so working through the sermon, I um, I want to uh, highlight a, a few things. In the first section, look at verses 1 and 2 uh, to show that Jesus is a minor character. You know, usually we think of uh, the gospel reading. We stand for it. We're going to hear about Jesus, and yet he's in the background. I mean, he's in the back room, right, with the, the waiters and caterers. And instead, John is putting this wedding in the forefront, and already, you know, our interpretive uh, sensibilities are are uh, thinking of, okay, Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride and, and the foretaste of the feast to come and all these sorts of things. Um, John will put these images and ideas in front of us and immediately allow our minds to wander in wonder. And that takes me to one of the questions that we got for today's sermon, and it deals with just the fact about the wine. Uh, does it portend to the wine at the Last Supper? And the answer is going to be, sure? Well, uh, sort of maybe a question mark, or just sure? Exclamation mark? You'll notice in John's Gospel, you don't get these, you know, full, full expositions, like on the sacraments. I mean, you get like some some baptismal uh, like talk in chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus, but you don't get a Last Supper scene in the upper room. You get a bunch of other stuff that happens in the upper room, but you don't have the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, some wonder, because you know John wrote his gospel later in the first century, and so the other gospels are already bouncing around, and so John doesn't need to give further discussion here, but rather... You just notice in John's gospel, there's just sacramental language and imagery just embedded throughout. And so any Christian reading John's gospel is going to be doing exactly what this person did with their question. Hey, I'm thinking about the Lord's Supper. I'm thinking about, you know, the prayers after the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we pray about the, this is a foretaste of the feast to come, the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. And that's why it's like, well, sure, you can go with that. Um but to say this is explicitly John teaching on the Lord's Supper, well, we can't say that by the text, but John, as the, as the author, as what the text is allowing us to do, we can see how we make those sorts of leaps. And so, to that question, sure, why not? Now, if you wanted to teach on the Lord's Supper explicitly, and what is it, and what is is it It's the body and blood of Christ, you would go to the synoptic gospels. You would go to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, where you get very clear teaching. This is what this is. Here's what happened. And then you would go to verses like John chapter 2 here, or John chapter 6, and and the whole discussion here of of Jesus saying, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Uh, But there's a sort of order in how we approach the scriptures on these sort of uh, doctrinal topics. Uh, Continuing on in the sermon, uh, the next section was verses uh, 3 to 5, and I brought up the, uh, the incarnation. And I mean, that has been a theme, and even in these last set of sermons, I hope to talk through in our podcast today is we are meditating on the incredible reality that God became flesh. God has dwelt among us. He is the first fully human man since Adam and Eve. And now you can start to say incredible things like, God, uh, the Word, has family dynamics. And you get a little bit of that here with Jesus and his mother. You get some other family dynamics Later on in John's Gospel, like in chapter 7, you get reference to how Jesus's uh, brothers and him are having strife with each other. And um, let's see. Now, uh, is it, this, But back when I preached on John 2, my sermon really focused on uh, what Mary said to Jesus and what Jesus said in response. This was a few years ago. And I really leaned into the idea of tone. And that gets into our second question that was submitted, and that uh, is—I like this. Uh, Do you think there was a lilt in Jesus' voice as he responded to Mary? And uh, I did have to look up lilt and remember what that meant, but the idea of a a sort of gentleness to his response, almost sort of a pleasant or maybe some rhyme or rhythm. And I'm going to tell you, as having to read that reading aloud to the congregation on Sunday— It was, how do you uh, put some tone to when Jesus says to his mother, woman? And how that term gets thrown around, and uh, it can come across as offensive. And maybe that was, I'm guessing, part of the thought behind the question here, that is there a sort of playfulness or gentleness or softness to the word when Jesus says to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, I didn't get into that in this sermon. Um, I, I focused on, in the sermon, how Jesus is talking about his hour that is yet to come. And he speaks about this throughout uh, the gospel. In, in John 12, he talks about, you know, when the hour comes, that he will be lifted up from the earth, you know, on the cross. And then finally, at the cross, John 19, it is finished. And who is standing there? His mother. Years ago, when I preached on John 2, and I dealt with tone, I dealt with... This, this word here, woman, and it's the Greek word gunai. And I leaned into that word because that word occurs here in John 2. And the next time it appears in John's gospel is in chapter 19. At the cross, Jesus sees his mother and he sees the disciple whom he loved. He sees John the apostle. He looks at his mother and says, Gunai, woman, behold your son. And then to John, you know, behold your mother. He hands off his mother to John, his friend, because all the brothers, all the family have abandoned Christ. And so Jesus relies on his friend John to care for his mother, and in a new sort of familial way. I think looking at Jesus at the cross in his use of gunai, woman, there, it definitely shapes Jesus' use here in chapter 2, and especially in the the context when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. I mean, Jesus is thinking about what he has come to do, fulfill the Father's will, do what the Father sent him to do, and that is to die and to rise. That's always on his mind, even here at a wedding way back in John 2. And so I I, I appreciate the, the question here, you know, is Jesus, is he coming across as a jerk or not? And no. He's speaking to his mother and sort of rehearsing how is he going to talk to her as he's hanging from his cross, as he hangs from the cross for her and for John and for all of us. Now, back to the sermon I preached on Sunday. In that part, verses 3 to 5, I'm more focused on, you know, what, what's Mary doing? And she's reminding Jesus, hey, they have no wine. I, I know who you are. Right? We can We can figure this out. And not let there be the, all sort of social shame and embarrassment, and you know, there's a lot of um, just cultural expectation here of how you would hold a wedding feast and you don't run out of wine. I, I liken that to how we go about prayers as Christians. Part of our prayers, and you see this throughout scriptures, of reminding God of His promises, reminding um, who God I know who You are, and um, and and this is what You promised to do. Uh, you are a God who's merciful and compassionate, and And even just simply, God, you created all these hours and minutes. You created our small spans of life. Please don't forget us. You don't forget the sparrow. Don't forget us. Remember us. Because if you don't remember us, we got nothing going for us. I think there's a sort of uh, instruction here we have from Mary of how we go about approaching our Lord in prayer and reminding him of he's our God. He's our creator. And He cares for what he has created. The next group in the sermon is verses 6 to 8. And in these verses, you get the the miracle itself. The instructions from Jesus, you know, fill the jars. they were filled to the brim. Draw some out. Take it to the master. And um, I, lent, I leaned more into the idea of just the amusement of this is the first miracle. I mean, Jesus turns water into wine. Gallons and gallons. Probably about 150 gallons of water, 150 gallons of wine. And, and why, and uh, this may make some with sensitivities uncomfortable, and yet our, our God, he cares about his creation, and there are beautiful gifts and delights of creation, like, like a good wine. <laughs> of course, you know, moderation and all these things that scripture reminds us of, but God cares about these sorts of things because he's come to save his whole creation. He hasn't just come to save souls. He's come to save our bodies. He's come to save all that he has created. And he delights in these things and can find recreation in them too. Now, uh, with uh, these verses here, you can imagine as soon as John starts dropping numbers, you know, there's six jars, here's how many gallons they hold. They used to be used for the Jewish purification rites. Oh man, you can imagine how the commentators and the church fathers just, they are roaring with meaning and explanation. It's this and that and the six days of creation, or it's an incomplete number. Look, it's the Old Testament Jewish purification, and now it's being fulfilled in Christ, and on and on you go. And what does it mean it's filled up to the brim? And there's all sort of interesting interpretive uh, ink that has been spilt. But I did want the sermon to progress and end at some point. Uh, But again, that's kind of how John's gospel is. Uh, He gives us a Uh, 12 inches of words, they have a mile of meaning. And um, for here in these verses, I just wanted to highlight how our God delights in his creation, uh, even down to making sure that there's enough wine for the wedding. Verses 9 to 10, this is where the scene shifts away over to the uh, master and the bridegroom. And this takes us to the final question that I got for this sermon about the significance of, hey, we get the locale, it's Cana in Galilee, But we don't get any other characters' names. I mean, Mary and Jesus. But we don't get the name of the bridegroom, the name of the bride, the name of the master, and any sort of uh, significance to that. And again, we're in John's Gospel, so it's maybe, well, I don't know, sure, is kind of the feel. And that's what I tried to lean into with this part of the sermon, is you have this unnamed master, you have this unnamed bridegroom. And it's maybe it's like a is a bad example because it's a a different sort of situation, but you think of like Hamlet, you know, the play and you have, you know, often Shakespeare do, you know, a play within a play and the, and the play that Hamlet puts before um, uh, the characters there and kind of rehearses the, the betrayal and the murder of, of a King just to watch, you know, his uh, uncle's reaction to see, you know, is this a way to kind of catch the conscience of the King, right? Uh, This is not a story about murder right and so it's a wedding but i'm i'm i think it's kind of cool that we can kind of see a rehearsal of christ and his bride the church and the the prophecies from isaiah about the feast and it is an unending sort of feast and you're not going to run out of wine just not god won't tolerate that sort of thing there'll be no more strife and no more fighting and no more death God will not stand for that on his mountain, in his new creation. I liken this to the parables, which you don't get in John's gospel. So mentioning the parables here, um, again, another kind of characteristic of John is you don't get parables. And just as we kind of see John using sacramental imagery and language without him teaching explicitly about the sacraments, you don't get the parables. And I thought, well, John would probably assume his readers were aware of Jesus' parables, just as we are. And how often those parables have characters like masters of banquets and bridegrooms and inviting people to the feast and, and weddings and all that. And how the parables reveal this is what God has come to do. He's come to put the world to rights. He's come to rule and to reign and to save. He is the king. And we see the fulfillment of all of that on the last day. God the Father, the great master of the banquet, he has laid out a feast for us. His son, the bridegroom, brings in his bride, the church. Um, kind of a play within a play might be a way to think of this. Final section of the sermon was verse 11, so sort of the ending of it. You know, John's saying this is the first of the miracles. Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples. And uh, I highlighted how, um, going back to the grayness of things and just sort of have that you know that theme to tie everything together. That is is difficult to end a story well. And that's part of why the grayness is just frustrating this time of the year. Because I don't feel like it's going to end. Uh, the sort of weight of sadness and sorrow and depression and seasonality and, and all of it doesn't really feel like it's going to end. We are all longing for a story that ends well. And I talked about, you know, when you read a book and it just kind of limps to the end or a TV series that fades to black instead of the writers actually doing the job of writing a good ending that actually has real resolution that's satisfying and not cheap and trite. Why do we care about these things? Why do we care about the TV show that ends poorly and are kind of just disgusted by it, even if the first five seasons are incredible? It's because within all of us, we want the story of all things to end well. We want the grayness to end. And our God is going to bring that story to completion in his son, Jesus. It's beginning here at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. It culminates in crucifixion and resurrection of the word become flesh. And as characters of the story here, awaiting Jesus to return, we trust our God's going to bring real resolution, a real good ending. But here it's beginning. And that's the word I highlighted in this part of the sermon with beginning. Uh, e- e- the English Standard Version had, a, this is the first of the signs of Jesus. And you can read it that way um, in translation. But it's the same word as John 1, one in the beginning. It's arche. It's the Greek word. That same word occurs here in chapter 2.11. This is the beginning of the signs of Jesus. And this is part of the structure of John's Gospel. You get seven major miracles Culminating in chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. And you talk about play within a play and rehearsing. Read John 11 again and just all the stuff of Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for several days, meaning he's really dead. There's no resuscitation going on here. Uh, they, get to this, they get to the tomb and it's a cave. And just very simply, there's a stone that lay against it. A rehearsal of the real resurrection to come in Christ a rehearsal of our resurrections on the last day. I mean, this is why John's gospel is so fun. This is also why it's, oh man, you get a John reading to preach on, what do you talk about and what do you not talk about? So that was kind of the way I approached the sermon this past Sunday, and I appreciate the the questions that came in about the sermon, and I wasn't surprised that there would be questions here. Um, it was it was certainly nice to kind of curl up uh, under a blanket with uh, with this story of John and and thankfully, it's uh, not an escape, it's it's the story of how all things are and will be in our Christ, and we can delight in that. It's a story that'll end well. All right, well, if you just wanted to listen to the podcast just for that sermon, uh, stop listening. Otherwise, I'm going to keep working backwards, and again, I'm playing a little catch-up here, and so I'm going to go back to Sunday, January 7th. This would be the baptism of our Lord, and uh When you come out of the Christmas season, you just jump right into Epiphany and just how Christmas falls each year, uh, how Epiphany itself, January 6th, falls, and there's just a lot going on. You have Christmas, you have Epiphany, baptism of our Lord. Uh, These are just really important days, and uh, it's just one thing after another, and all of a sudden, the infant is in the Jordan River as an adult. And yeah, we're going to get to the main story at hand. Lent is drawing near. Now, uh, Baptism of Our Lord, uh, it's, it was the Matthew 3 reading, and uh, I love the Gospel of Matthew. Those of you who have been around me enough know that I, it's just my favorite gospel. And one of the intriguing things is that this is the first time you get Jesus speaking in Matthew. Right, This is the, you know, the gospel about Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and you get uh, the the birth narrative, you get the the Magi, you get the flight to Egypt, and Matthew's kind of building this Old Testament case of all these prophecies that he's fulfilling. And finally, beginning of chapter 3 is John the Baptist's ministry, right? All camel-haired and locusts and honey and uh, repent and all this. Prepare the way of the Lord. These verses come right after the introduction of John the Baptist. And so one of my hopes with the sermon was to Remind us of the context of Matthew three. We're reading the last four verses. You know, it was the verses thirteen to seventeen were the reading of chapter three? But we have just been introduced to John, and John always prepares the way, and not to lose sight of that. Uh, but also to look ahead to chapter four one. It's one of my least favorite chapter breaks in all of Scripture. And again, the chapter breaks and verse numbers they were added later on. They're they're helpful to navigate, but sometimes we we treat them as sort of walls to each other. The spirit that Jesus receives in his baptism, then in chapter 4, 1, leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I mean, there is such a connection between the beginning of 3, the baptism at the end of 3, and then into chapter 4, into the wilderness. Uh, God is afoot. God is at work. And here is what his royal rule and reign is going to look like. And Jesus is replaying the Old Testament, and he is fulfilling it in a way that no one in the Old Testament could prior in his baptism jesus is, is israel reduced to one and just as the children of israel failed in the wilderness or unlike the children of israel, oh, unlike the children of israel that failed in the wilderness here is israel reduced to one who is actually faithful and can endure the temptation and defeat the tempter himself now end of chapter 3 jesus arrives and these are his first words: "Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." I, th- I mean, these are the first words uh, from Jesus in Matthew's gospel, and I wanted those words to sort of stand before us and and allow us to meditate on on the meaning and depth that is there. Why has Jesus come? The angel tells Joseph in chapter one, "You'll uh, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." I mean. That's what the name means, the Lord saves. And part of that saving work is to fulfill all righteousness. And often when we think of the word righteousness, we're thinking in terms of uh, we are not righteous because we are sinful, Jesus will pay for our sins, or the kind of the law court imagery of, you know, we are now declared not guilty because Jesus is guilty on the cross, or Jesus is our eternity and he fights for us and he defeats us. the prosecuting attorney of the devil. I mean, all these are fine ways and scriptural ways to speak of the gospel event. What I wanted to do with the sermon was invite us to think even more fully of what does righteousness mean. God has, yes, come to save us from our sins and to make us right with God in that sense. God has come to make all things righteous, to put all things back into order. And that even includes how we are with our bodies. Uh, A lot of the sermon focuses on language of body and how we are just not right with ourselves. And there are a lot of obvious connections and connotations and and realities that we can see about just how we are sort of at war with ourselves, our bodies, our minds. Things are just breaking down or things are in a disjunct sort of way. Jesus has come to make all righteous. He cares about your body. This is what he's come to do. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. At Jesus' baptism, he becomes, uh, in one way, the sin bearer. Or he's begun to be marked by his father. This, this is my beloved son. This is the one who's going to put it right. We're going to hear the father proclaim uh, this coming Sunday, Transfiguration. About this is my beloved son, and we're going to get a little more from the father there. What about him? Listen to him. Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. He stands in the place of sinners, he stands in our place. John's right. I don't, you don't need to be baptized. I need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. John's right. And yet, Jesus has come to stand in our place. He's come to make all righteous, he's come to restore our bodies. We'll no longer be at war with ourselves. We'll no longer be at war with one another. We'll no longer be at war with God. Those are some of the ideas there I wanted to get across in the sermon. And to do that, as I'm looking over the manuscript again, it's uh, I, I like the idea of imagining John post-baptism, <laughs> where he's back at his apartment and standing in front of the mirror and um, kind of reflecting on having baptized Jesus. But even more so, when John looks in a mirror, he sees himself. He sees what's wrong with him. And that what he sees in, in, his, in the mirror makes him uncomfortable. And then for us, when we look in the mirror, we are uncomfortable because we know we are not right with ourselves. Sometimes we speak of the law's work as a mirror and how it accuses us and exposes our sin, and this is true. Uh, but also, we look in the mirror and we are... We are pretty good accusers of ourselves. We know how to prosecute prosecute our own case against ourselves. Jesus has come to make it all right, to make you right even within yourself. He has come to fulfill all righteousness for you. And finally, I want to run back to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I never got an episode out about those sermons, and I'm not going to break down each of them. But rather, I would encourage you all to... uh, if you hadn't, or you just, you know, you heard one and not the other, to listen to both sermons uh, together. Uh, one of the great things I, I've, I find in preaching and as a joyful opportunity is to get to preach Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. In recent years, you know, with vicars, I'll, you know, I'll give them Christmas Day. And, you know, that kind of makes sense. You know, we're sharing preaching responsibilities, and uh, that's part of it as I. Don't always get to preach when I want to. Uh, this year, uh, just with how planning and calendars went, uh, it, it looked like, you know, I, I wanna, I've I want missed preaching Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I'm going to do them both together. Why do I enjoy it so much? Well, I'll give you a few thoughts and maybe some encouragements for you. Uh, one is Christmas Eve tends to focus on Luke chapter 2, you know, the, the Christmas story, uh, shepherds in the field, at the stable, Mary pondering these things. You know, there he is, the child, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And to work through the Christmas story once again and sort of the narrative beats of it. And so when Luke looks at the Christmas story, he's looking at it, if you will, from below. He's, you know, kind of standing on earth, looking at the events, right? Luke is just kind of meticulously writing down the details as he does. And it's good to see all that and to hear the angel's proclaim two shepherds, you know, and, and imagine us standing on earth, looking up at the angels, there is peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, right? Um, and that it really is happening here in a very earthy, and real sense. That's kind of the aim of a Christmas Eve sermon and service. It, it Luke 2 kind of grounds us, if you will. And that's what I tried to do with... um. Uh, with the sermon about the idea of counting and, uh, you know, a child counting and we count and we love to count and um, God can count too, and he can count our sins. And yet uh, God has given us a son whose blood will count for more than our sins. And so I really tried to focus on, um, you know, from a, a, if you will, from a vantage point of from below or from the earth, as we look at the Christmas scene, as this sort of comes to us, down to us and encounters us. That's kind of what Christmas Eve does, and that's what Luke 2 invites us to do. Christmas Day, however, the main reading is John chapter 1, uh, the prologue to John's gospel. While Luke kind of looks from below and from the earth, John is sort of out in space looking down at the earth, almost from God's sort of vantage point. You know, here's the great story of things. Anyway, you get these, You know, my my sermon from from uh, water to wine, in some of this language. Um, It's almost like from God's vantage point. Here's what's happening. Here's what he's seen. Here's the zoomed out picture. Here's the grand plan. The word, the eternal word from the beginning, who created all things. He's coming to shine in the darkness. He's also light. He is word. He is light. He is truth. He's the way. Right? Chapter 14 darkness is not going to overcome him. Darkness will reject him. He'll come to his own, but his own won't receive him. There'll be this John character who's going to prepare the way, but he's not the light. The true light is coming to the world. And to those who do receive him, to those who do believe in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. And finally, the great verse of the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, John 1 is the zoomed out from above sort of perspective and really meditates on the mystery of incarnation. Luke 2 from below, John 1 from above. This is why it's fun to preach Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And my encouragement to you, this is why we have worship on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, is to reflect on the fullness of the mystery to reflect on the fullness of what is the Christ event, what does Christ Mass mean, and how appropriate it is to have the Lord's Supper on the day when we remember the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and here is his flesh and his blood for you. I used uh, an image in the Christmas Day sermon. Um, It's from an artist named uh, William Congdon, uh, Black City on Gold River, and I kept returning to that image in this idea of kind of crumpling up the image and unfurling it. And I haven't listened to the recording, but you might actually hear that noise as everyone kind of crumbles up their thing and uncrumples it. And, um, we think of what we've done with the creation and we can't fix it. No matter how much you try to smooth it out, we have so damaged the thing. And you get a little more story about, you know, why Congdon makes this piece of art. Um, but our, our Christ is actually going to come and make all things good as new. The Word become flesh is going to fix it all, crucified and risen. This is the grand story again. Um, so my encouragement to you is, you know, listen to the Eve and Day sermons um, and and consider, you know, just why as, as, as Christians, you know, we, we have services on both days and there's, there's a togetherness with them. So, uh, what are we, 30 minutes in the recording here? I hope we're all sort of caught up now with uh, the podcast. Thanks for your patience uh, with this time of the year. Um, yeah, we'll kind of drive you back to our regular routine. Lent is coming, you know, uh, Ash Wednesday is February 14th. This Sunday we have Transfiguration, and then we enter into the Sundays of pre-Lent. So uh, blessings to you all. And uh, Oh, yeah, we have a website, org. Listen to the sermons, podcast whatever the credits are, all those. All right, see you all. Bye.